0: Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford.
1: Hey, Brenton here. Thank you for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. This episode is a collection of the best parts from across all of our podcasts for the 2018, I hope you enjoy it. If you haven't left a review in the iTunes store, I'd love it if you did. It helps us reach more people and get in front of more people. So, if you haven't left a review in the app store, then please leave a review, an honest review, of what you think of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've had a great 2018, and I hope that next year is even better. And I know you do a lot of Q and A's on uh, on Facebook as Facebook live events and uh, I really like your approach where I mean you're similar to me where it's about you need a lot of background on the the person and there's no one right response for everyone because it's so individual with what might be causing their uh, their them pain or why, why them, their feet might be sinking so um, what do you like to go through when it comes to uh, you call it a needs analysis when you start working with someone what's that needs analysis look like for you
2: Yeah, so one, it depends if they're coming in for an injury or they're coming in for performance. You know, if they're coming in for an injury, it just starts with a sit down where we're just chatting about, you know, where exactly they're having pain and the typical physical therapy approach where we're learning about, you know, what things bother it, um, if it's upsetting or disrupting their training at all. And then, you know, obviously where our clinic's a little different, we do have that swimming background. We can get into the specific biomechanics if it's, you know, painful on their initial catch of their stroke and things like that. if it's someone coming in for performance, we'll be talking about injuries as well at the beginning, because that can limit performance, even if it's a past injury. Then after that, we'll be talking about areas that they feel like they could improve most on in their swimming. So just a, a subjective interview, talking to them about their opinions. And then after that, we get into what I call you know, the daily little things that add up a lot, which is nutrition, sleep, and then mindset, and trying to ask them questions, try and get into their head, get into their daily routines, and see if we can pick off some of the you know, simple daily things to help out with Im- impor- improvement of performance. Um, after that, we're going to be putting them through a movement screen, one that we have pretty specific to the clinic, but it's like you said, individualized to the swimmer. Um, there are, is a lot of overlap between swimmer to swimmer, but obviously if you're a triathlete that's coming in um, and you have a history of knee pain, then we're going to be doing some more knee-based stuff versus if you're just an age group swimmer with no history of, of any pain at all. But that's how we get the whole process going. If the athlete has video, we we utilize that. And sometimes we'll go to the pool and do some video analysis ourselves, but it depends exactly um, their level, where they're at, and what they're looking for.
1: Today's episode is about becoming a laser, not a lantern. And I heard this analogy used by another podcaster, Aubrey Marcus, and I think it applies really well to swimming. And the difference between a laser, and a lantern is that a lantern is broad spectrum light it's not focused on a particular point it can light up a small room but the light itself isn't very strong if you compare that to a laser which is a narrow spectrum light that tight focus allows it to uh, to have things such as laser cutting it allows that that laser beam to try travel over long distances and stay very narrow as it does it so what i what i encourage people to do when i'm coaching them is become like a laser, have that narrow focus at least for six months, at least for six months. When you're focusing on something and you're trying to make a change or improve things, at least give it six months before you choose to go broad spectrum to look for other ideas and try those because I see so many people getting distracted by Facebook posts and Instagram posts from other athletes or coaches and it can be good to get different ideas from different people. I think that's really important. But when it comes to, once you've actually decided on a path to take and a, a method to, to follow, whether it be what we teach, whether it be what your, your own triathlon or your swimming coach is teaching, give that enough time to work and put the blinders onto it. So if you're constantly second-guessing whether or not you think you're on the right path, if you're second-guessing um, whether you've got the, the right coaching or the right uh, focus Sometimes that can distract you and you don't give the actual thing that you're focusing on enough time to work. So give whatever that that focus is, give it at least six months to work. So while it can be good to go from laser to lantern sometimes back and forth, it's good to feel those ideas and have that broad spectrum and look outside of what you're doing. Once you've chosen your path, get laser focused on it. And that is often the best way to see results. And the analogy I like to use when it comes to training versus racing is going from a manual car to an automatic car. And in a manual car, you've got to worry about when you're putting the clutch down, changing gears, especially for a learner driver, someone who's brand new, they're going to be really up in their head trying to get the timing right of all these things, and it can make it very clunky. And I notice that when someone's working on changes to their technique and stroke, they're often up in their head a lot and it can be hard to coordinate all of these little different elements and, and put these things together. But if you can practice that enough in training and you can have that high-focused swimming where you're intentional, you're really focused about what you're doing, if you can do that in training to the point where it starts to become more automatic in your training, then you get to the point where you're racing and you can completely, well, almost completely switch off from thinking about your stroke and you can just go into the race and just worry about how you're pacing it, how you're sighting, whether you're in the right spot. You can just go into race mode and any technical focus has been done and it's been made automatic and it's become a habit because you practice that in training. So I like to use that analogy of when you're training, use that as your manual mode. As you're thinking about your stroke nearly 100% of the time, you won't have as much flow as you would when you're racing. It's going to be a little bit different. But with that sort of approach, that's when you can start to get into flow. You can become a lot more automatic when it comes to racing. Because as soon as you overthink things when you're racing, as soon as you get up in your head, you might delay something by half a second. You might take the focus away from how you're pacing things. And that's when you can start to get up in your head. And you see that happen, especially at the high level. As soon as those athletes step out of flow they step out of automatic mode that's when they start to make mistakes so that's why i like to practice manual mode in training automatic mode in racing you've probably heard the analogy of in order to fill up a glass vase if you put in the big rocks first and then you fill it up with smaller rocks and then pebbles and then sand you can fill it all the way up to the top while fitting everything in And the way I sort of view this in swimming is that if you work on your biggest rocks, and for most people, those big rocks are, they're doing the work. So they're doing the training that's needed and necessary to get them to where they want to go. And it's working on their technique and having enough focus on the technical aspect of their stroke to be able to swim fast. For most people, they're the the big rocks. The smaller rocks are things like strength training, nutrition, nutrition, mobility, mindset, that sometimes can be a big rock as well, depending on what you're training for. But really those those key big rocks, if you work on those first, that's highly important. It's really the 20% that is the 80% of, of the importance of what's gonna to contribute to your success. But you don't wanna neglect those smaller rocks like we just mentioned. So make sure you get those big things done first, but after that, it can be really important, it can be really beneficial to make sure that you do include those other things if you want to have the most success that you can, if you want to fill up your glass phase as full as you possibly can. So don't neglect the smaller rocks, they are still important, but if you get the majority of stuff done during the training, working on your stroke, that's going to put you in a pretty good stead, in a pretty good way. After training for a big event, I experienced this with, um, with Ironman, I experienced this when I was training for uh, for national age back in the day it was you'd have so much focus on one particular uh, event and you put so much into it that you i kind of got a little bit of sort of post race or post challenge depression whereas you know where you just kind of you get that low where you're like okay i'm just kind of not doing anything here i haven't got a, a big goal to work towards and it's i think it yeah sometimes it can be very hard to avoid that that lull there but I'm thinking what I've, what I've liked the most has been really those, those longer swims where your mind, you know, your, your mind just really clears, your, your body's completely buggered and you get to bed that night and you just sink into the sheets. It's like, it's just, and, and, and you kind of go to the, the, the point where you, you really have to, to push yourself to get through it. If I, I think if I can do that, uh, at least once a week. And then if after Roto it's in running or cycling or swimming, just in, in some way, that's going to kind of keep me a little more sane than if I if I stopped completely.
3: Completely. And yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I mean you've done a few big events, but I think I I feel that after after Roto especially, sometimes when we have the Masters Nationals here it's too close together uh, with the rawness. and I, I I like doing my butterfly in the pool as well. But sometimes there's not enough time, you know, to rest to recover from 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 the twenty k to a two hundred butterfly. So um, I just sort of lose focus for for a few months, and 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 definitely um, either I don't know either cycling. I think Renata will be happy about this, but um, any doing doing something that just like you said just take your mind off it and you, you you're not numb but you're sort of in in the zone um for a couple hours that definitely helps the the post post race post big event depression
1: yeah yeah go to um especially for i know you've been an athlete and a swimmer all of your life and i uh, yeah the, I, I think when i'm when i when i actually coach the best when i work the best uh, is when I'm is when I'm challenged and working towards something and it's like the saying goes if, if you want something done give it to a busy person because yeah. they're probably much better at being effective with their work and time management than someone who's who's lazy and and I feel like when I'm kind of in the mode right now generally I'm you know I'm firing on all, all cylinders uh, sports wise and and, and coaching wise and everything and it's all just going really really well so yeah while it is good to have downtime I, yeah I've been thinking about what that That next thing's going to be that will sort of keep me at at this somewhat you know level with the with the elite guys you progress throughout the season you obviously build up in terms of volume you probably change the focus change the type of training do you do much of that with swimmers uh you're more everyday swimmer
4: um, I don't actually to be quite honest um, I mean the, the periodization that we used to use was was uh, quite complex with mm-hmm. with uh, Olympic level swimmers and um, we I would generally put out quite a, uh, a convoluted season plan which what I would adjust from season to season depending on success or not um, and try new things um, what I work with, with my mainly my adult squad swimmers now is, um, is because of the constraints of the time that they're coming in, we're, what we're doing at the moment is running three uh, one and a quarter hour sessions a week, they're all morning squads. Uh, so it's generally a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, and because of the recovery factor, uh, after you know, you, you've generally got a, a Tuesday to recover and you're ready to come back on a Wednesday, um, it'll be slightly different. Um, I do do certain things with periodization through the season uh, where we do p- potentially a little bit more technical work uh, and then building up towards. Their, their main competition phases will do a little bit more um, distance work, but because it's really only three one and a quarter hour sessions a week, I try and add some technique work, some, a little bit of aerobic work, and some speed work to all of those sessions. Uh, and I just think that that's just good training. It keeps people sharp neuro- neurologically if they're doing some speed work. Um, I like to try and do um, technical stuff with speed because I believe that if you're if you're training a technique uh, and trying to um, consolidate it into habit, um, one of the best ways of being able to do that is through shorter distances of speed um, and without with, without putting yourself under too much duress. Um, and so that you've actually got enough time to rest and recover and repeat the, the patterns that you're trying to change in your technique. So we'll, we'll regularly do some speed work. We'll regularly do some aerobic training. Um, I always try and make my sessions interesting and varied by putting in some drills and some little bit of pull work or band-only swimming um, and uh, and try and get them kicking this, you know, the... the that is one of the differences I do notice uh, between elite swimmers and the general adult swimmers is the kicking ability is not nearly as good. So we do try and uh, encourage a little bit of kick work and and focusing on on the drive that the kick can create to help the uh, the power of the stroke. Generally, it doesn't necessarily have to be the propulsion from the kick, but a, but a, a, you know a nice strong kick with good timing can help the the purchase that the feet get to help um, initiate the body roll and 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 the power generated through the hips and shoulders. So um, yeah, I, I guess in coming back to your original question, there's not a whole lot of periodization which I'm currently working with. But that's mainly uh, based around the system and the amount of time that I'm working with these athletes, Uh, you know, as opposed to working with someone uh, for the whole year when you're doing two hours a day of pool work and uh, two hours in the morning and two hours at night. um, There has to really be a whole lot of thought on how much recovery you've got, what's your microcycles are like through the week, what your mesocycles are like through the season, um, and even your macrocycles look looking long term, building up to Olympics and, and areas like that.
1: I talk with a lot of coaches like yourself about this sort of stuff and it's it's something that on a daily basis I run into as well when I'm with my own training. So what what sort of stuff do you like to I guess what questions do you ask? What do you do to help change the belief systems of your, your athletes?
5: I think one of the biggest things is getting people to look at outcome in a different way. So, so instead of um, looking at the goal and the outcome, the, the the simplest way to put it is your outcome is a product of your focus. Um, you know, it's it, it's the outcome is is a product of how much how present you can be during a an event or a process, and that's how you get the best out of it. So if you're future-based or past-based during that process, the outcome isn't going to be what it could have been. And that includes the way you think. Like if you think I'm not good enough or I don't have the right body type like we talked about just a moment ago and you're projecting that into the process, then you're disconnected from the process and you, you you're not you're not – able to to um, reach your potential and I think that's the that's the important thing and and the other thing is what I'm trying to do with my athletes right now is get them to understand that the belief st- system structure that they have is not the definition of what they are you can actually separate the two out without wanting to get too hippie about it like you you can actually at the at the at the core, we are a field of awareness. I mean, that's what even meditation teaches: is that we are a field of awareness. Then you have this belief system and a thought structure that is based on all your experiences that you've you've had growing up. So when when you what I try and get people to do is see that yes, what you think is there, but it doesn't have to affect you. And and the most important thing that I try and teach our athletes at the moment is that you are the master of your thoughts. The thoughts are not the master of you. And a lot of people are victim and and slave to their thoughts, but the thoughts just go around in circles. There's no real intelligence to those thoughts. The raw intelligence is in the connection to the performance or the connection to the training session. So really what I'm trying to teach people in training is to just get conscious with your training, be, be, in in your training, in the process, in the felt sense, and don't let the negative belief system affect the moment.
1: And uh, and one of the things I wanted to talk about first was this video that kind of went viral recently was um, you're over in New Zealand and a, a parent asked you, how do I know if my child is talented? And your response, I think, kind of... it. It, um, it hit home with a lot of people and it resonated in a way that not many people have been that blunt and honest and, and spoken about, you know, spoken about it in that way. And I think it had over a million and a half views on, on Facebook and that was just from this one page. And uh, I thought the response was, was brilliant. And can you talk a little bit about basically about that, that question and that response and, um, and why you think it resonated with so many people?
6: Yes, no problem. And look, it's always great uh, to be on with you, mate, and talk all things swimming and sport. Yeah, that, um, as my kids said, I said I've become viral and one of them said, no, Dad, you're more like a virus. It's just uh, (laughs) to keep me grounded and stop me thinking too far ahead. But it's a very common question that I've been asked in sporting parent discussions, which I've been doing around the world for 20 years. And a parent will often talk about, their own child in terms of their athletic ability and in swimming someone will commonly say Wayne I've got a really talented eight-year-old backstroker and what sort of training should they do and I I generally come down very hard and say look there is no such thing as an eight-year-old champion backstroker or an 11-year-old superstar freestyler they just happen to be kids who at that moment in time in their development just happen to do that event a little better than the other kids at their age and stage of development and it is a little bit blunt and confronting because we all love our kids you know you and i are dads and we love our kids more than life itself and we want nothing more than to see them have every opportunity to be successful in life to be happy to realize their potential and the emotion of believing that my son is a star or my daughter's brilliant at anything is very normal and natural but also as professionals we look at it and think well hang on a minute we have seen Thousands and thousands of these talented young kids, so-called talented young kids from 8 to 10 years of age, who are winning everything. They're winning the, the state 100 freestyle by 15 meters. They're dominating their age group at 8, 9, 10, 11. And at 14, 15, 16, we're not seeing them at all. They're not even in the sport, or if they are, they're certainly no longer dominating And when you talk to great athletes, and I'm talking Olympic champions and world record holders, and you talk to them about what have been the real factors of success, what's led them to be so brilliant, you never hear things like a big VO2 max or great lactate tolerance capacity. It's always around, I love the sport. I just love the sport. I really enjoy being in the sport. I love training. My coach is amazing. I can't wait to get to work out and hang out with my friends. So what the great athletes are telling us is that the love of the sport and the enjoyment of the sport and the experience of the sport and teammates and working with great coaches, they're the things that really matter and they're the things that keep them swimming. And so the purpose of that presentation was very much to say to parents, look, love your kids by all means, but stay grounded. Your job is not to put them forward as superstars and great athletes. Your job is to love them unconditionally to value and accept them for no reason other than they are your child and not to value and accept them for what they do, but to value and accept them and love them for who they are.
1: There's a number of different breath training, I guess, systems or ways to go about it out there. You've got um, the Wim Hof method, which is probably one of the most widely known ones, I guess. And yeah, uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different... Ways to apply breath holding. Some of them might even contradict each other. And I mean, I went to a a a kind of a surfing uh, breath holding training course with Nam Baldwin. I don't know if you know Nam, but um, yeah, so I went. Yeah, went to that, and that was that was excellent. And that was basically surf specific. And um, so, what's the difference between what you're teaching compared to, let's say? the Wim Hof Method or maybe what Nam teaches to the surf guys. So how how does it differentiate?
7: Yeah, um, I mean, there are three vastly different programs. If you're looking at them, the Nam's program, breath enhancement training, you know, the Wim Hof Method and, and what I do. Um, my foundation is in science. I'm a physiologist and a physiotherapist and I want to measure outcomes. So um, Wim Hof, for example, so his breathing technique, if, the way I approach it is more about a meditative space to enhance your feelings. Now, we know the breath has a really potent role in, in changing your physiology. Um, I wouldn't recommend the Wim Hof method for a swimmer pre-race, for example. So the Wim Hof method, you're essentially hyperventilating the system, trying to increase the pH of the blood um, to alkaline the body. Now, great maybe for chronic long-term condition treatments, but really in a performance environment, if you're exposing the body to higher pH levels, your oxygen affinity increases, so you're not going to be able to deliver that oxygen to the effectively to the muscles. So wrong space to use to whim off. Um, the Nan Baldwin's breath enhancement training, a fantastic program. Um, you know really surf specific. Uh, and from my understanding, you know, he doesn't put um, his athletes on a, uh, let's measure your volume. How big is the largest inhalation you can measure? What is the strength of your inspiratory muscles? Let's measure this right now. So, from my understanding, uh, that's how my program would differ um, to his program. Um, I, I'm not, I wouldn't put himself and um, Wim Hof in the same category. Um, I think that M's programs are much more specific to an athlete. And um, although Wim Hof's great at exposing um, many different people to an alternative lifestyle and exercise and the importance of living a healthy life. Um, his program is pretty general in its approach, and I don't know if you would agree with, agree with me with that. Um, you know, his philosophy is excellent, but uh, in terms of a breath training program, it, it, it's pretty lacklustre in, in its attack. Um, Nam, I can't really speak for himself, but the way my program would differ from his would be being a little bit more scientific about measuring the results for a patient delivering a program and then objectively testing those results as well so you know like i said before sitting down with the athlete james roberts for example needs to take a big breath off the block because he's going to hold his breath for the whole time so let's make that the best goddamn breath that he can achieve so that he's never worrying about taking a breath towards the end of that 50 meter sprint so i want to flexible training system, I want to technique training system, I want a strength training system, I want to get it really powerful so that he can get that inhalation in as quickly as possible um, and I'll test him along the way if I'm not achieving the correct objective measures then I need to change what I'm delivering to his system and then that's where my exercise physiologist um, university training comes in, it's okay well look we've done a drop set with his uh, inspiratory muscles, we've overloaded his inspiratory muscles, now we're attacks the system under load so let's fatigue it and then ask him to hit certain measures as well so we are really potently stimulating his inspiratory muscles to get that adaptation that we're after so i don't want to rubbish anyone in this breath training space as you've mentioned there are a lot of different mechanisms and different ways to approach it um you know the breath is pretty mystical it's you know it does have a connection to the autonomic nervous system and um you know like the heart it's We just breathe and we're not really conscious of it. But unlike the heart, we do have volitional control over it. So, you know, I can over-breathe now. I can become all tingly and numb and and my muscles can contract, which is exactly what happens during the Wim Hof method. Now, what benefit does that drive and give to my system? Maybe if I'm uh, a person who's unhealthy and and making the wrong decisions in life and, and really need to focus on my health, then it might enable me to get my mind into a space where it's becoming much more easy to tap into a, a positive health space. But if I'm an athlete and looking to warm up, or if I'm looking to improve my volumes, or looking to improve my performance, the, the Wim Hof method might not be what I want to tap into. So yeah, I think it's taking each athlete and each sport on its on its merit and uh, applying what you need. And and I always talk to the coach I always talk to the swimmer and say look what, what are you after you know what why are you here uh, and what do you want to achieve from my program and then I give those tools to the athlete and to the coach to say if he wants to take less breaths, I can help him achieve that if he wants to take a faster breath in because he's um, he's take he's turning his head too long if that's a technique thing you want to work on I can give the athlete those tools to him.
1: How'd the race feel? So, sort of going through, you know, the first ten k's. How'd that feel? And then, um, you know, with five to go, did it? Did you feel like you managed to just hold your pace the whole way through? Was there any times where you got cold or sore or fatigued at yeah. all? Or you like, what, how'd it feel for you?
8: Well, it was a good race. As in the first, as, as with lots of these races, as doing the training that I do, it's often because I trained for the 10k normally it's often around that you know that 12 to 14k mark where the hammer sort of hits and this time around that's really what I was focusing on to be able to push through so when I did get cold because it was cold around the middle of the race and it was and when I did get really tired so around you know 16 17k this year I was able to keep that tempo up so I just really focused on my tempo and focused on my stroke and keep ticking over because of the waves and because of the swell it was not worth it to focus on pulling on my pulling my stroke more and being a more efficient stroke, but the the best way forward to get a faster time was to just get my tempo up. And that was just, you know, race knowledge and just knowing the knowing the conditions and racing to the conditions, really.
1: Do you know roughly what stroke rate you tend to, to sit around for oh. something like Roto or is it just just go by feel?
8: It's just the feel of it, really. Just a comfy... If I was in a pool, it would probably translate to,
1: you know, 109s
8: just ticking over, just... it's all dependent on how much kicking you do how much uh, stroke you do but no i wouldn't be able to tell you exact number
1: this episode is all about a couple of things that i learned listening to and chatting with heidi gann and solomon wright who won the rottenness channel swim both of them are elite level open water swimmers and in the lead up to the rottenness swim which they both won both broke the record a few things they had in common or a few common themes. So the first one was going by a feel. One of the main things that Solomon spoke about was in his training, he focused a lot on going at the same pace and the same effort that he feel he could sustain across Rottnest, across the 20 kilometers. And I mean, he only trained for six weeks in the lead up to that race because he was injured. But one of the, the things that really stood out was it was all about the intuitiveness of how it felt and how he felt his pace was going. And that's one thing that I see can separate the really good swimmers from the okay swimmers, is that intuitiveness and that ability to sense their pace. And one of the most common things that I see can hold people back and can stop them from developing that awareness is the reliance on their watch too much, the reliance on their Garmin or Apple watch, whatever they're using. If you're using that to time yourself, every single lap, every single session, while it looks good on Strava, it gives you that positive feedback when you see the kilometers adding up in, in your Strava app or in your Garmin app. I get it, I've, I have sort of had the same sense and the same, um, you know, it gives me the same sort of feeling that it, it does look good when it, those kilometers add up and you see your paces and your times, but you're missing out on the most important thing and that's the intuitiveness. And if you listen to the Grant Giles podcast, where I, I think it was number 110, one of the big things he spoke about was you should really you know what these the best races in the world do is just work on their intuitive, intuitiveness listen to their body and then the data comes second so if that data comes first for you and you're not listening to your body then that might be an opportunity for you to actually be able to find some speed and be able to find that next level in your swimming. so that was the first thing was just going by feel and intuitiveness the second thing was they do, or they were doing quite a bit of sustained pace work, um, also known as threshold or critical swim speed, but sustained pace work where they were essentially swimming a, a good majority of their Ks at the same pace that they wanted to go for that swim, their, their rotness swim. So you know they've, they've got 10 plus years of aerobic base there. So they've, they've got that behind them. So they don't necessarily need to be doing that much aerobic base. They have that built in. So they, they did most of their work at sustained pace. Now, depending on where you are in your swimming or your triathlon career, you may need to do a little bit more aerobic base work, which is essentially swimming at the same pace where you could almost have a, a conversation, that sort of level of effort, so aerobic base work. And, and when you're doing aerobic base work, what I tell my swimmers is it's, that's really the, the long, and the slow swims. So I, I try and aim for a minimum of 60 minutes. So 60 to 90 minutes is a good amount of time to, to do that aerobic base work. Um, if you don't have the time, you know, 45 minutes is okay, but 60 to 90 minutes is really ideal. And the goal there is to keep the heart rate low, hold good form, hold good technique, and, um, and a good way to do that too is with pool boy or pool boy and paddle. So that can help keep your heart rate down. It can also help you build swim strength if you're not able to get in the water more than three times a week. Um, so that's, that's the other thing, is just uh, sustained pace work they were doing a lot of, provided that you've got that aerobic base there. So they're really the, the two key things. The third thing, as a bit of an aside, was their mentality going into it and their, their planning. So the mentality that they had is they were hoping to win, they, they were both sick and, and injured in the lead up to it, but they feel like they'd done the right amount of work leading up to that to have a good race. So they had the, the confidence and the surety about knowing that they could do the distance most likely hold that, that pace and time. And they also had the experience behind them. So Solomon spoke about, it was the second time he did the race. The first time he, he blew up about, I think it was 14, 15 Ks into the race. And, uh, but he took that experience of how he felt he, he paced it and how he trained towards it. He took that and was able to make some changes the next time around. So if you are doing something for the first time, whether it's a half Ironman or a 5K swim, whatever it might be for you, there's a good chance that you're not gonna nail it. You're going to come away with a couple of things that you go, okay, next time, I'm gonna change this, I'm gonna change that. So experience, especially in open water swimming, um, that's one thing that you can't can't escape. There's no shortcut around getting experience in the open water, and for the newer swimmers that I tend to coach, they they often have a bit of anxiety around swimming in the open water because it's it's different than a pool. It's obviously it doesn't feel as safe, and there's chop, and there's wind, and there's waves. But the way to build up the confidence is is graduated vol- voluntary graduated exposure to um, to things that you're afraid of. So all that means is, right, let's say you're afraid of going open water at all, right? You, you just don't feel safe at all. What I'd, what I'd recommend to, to somebody in that situation is go out and swim 100 meters close to the shore and have, have a friend there just you know, next to you um, as a bit of support, all right? And so if you can, if you can do that, uh, that's going to build up your confidence. Then the next time you might look at doing 400 meters close to the shore with a friend there as support. And then you can just gradually, over time, push that, push the boundaries, expand your level of comfort and build it up that way. What are some of the changes in how they digest food um, with different types of freestyle, with their different strokes?
9: Yeah, different types. So, ten, and this kind of tends to be, um, you know, we we tend to change this a little bit, but sometimes. So there's three different things that we need to take into account for nutrition, and when you're running, usually it's actually there's four. And one I kind of you know don't really. A lot of my swimmers will be like, I don't like this, and I'm like, well, you know, it's not a floating buffet. <laughs> it's it's nutrition for performance, but besides taste, which is the one that most people work on, the three other areas are how how you can eat the food, like whether the food is ingestible so you know when you're running or cycling you can have a whole bunch of different types of foods but when you're swimming it's a little bit more difficult then we're looking at how you can digest the food and different people digest that differently and the last one is what foods are absorbed so when you look at a lot of the sports nutrition research because it's difficult to do in swimmers all of that endurance research is done in runners or cyclists and food just acts very very differently depending on where your position is so, if people are faster, they have a faster stroke rate and they're thinner. We tend to try and put them on a higher carbohydrate and more quick-acting carbohydrates. They're more likely to get a bit cold. Um, I can talk a bit about the body composition and a tick. And then the slower people are, the fatter people are with a slower stroke rate, um, more hip-driven. We can almost get them on a high, high-fat kind of lower-carb diet, so that they're kind of the two extremes. And then, but. What tends to happen is people aren't always a hundred percent one style, like they may be lean and slow and have a slow stroke rate. So then we just have to monitor how we're going to use these different types of fuels as well.
10: Areas now where DEX is merging into is around metabolic health. So because we can measure that visceral fat component, um, People with diabetes or heart disease are really interested in in understanding that um, because when we look at visceral fat, it tends to have one of the strongest relative risks to some of those health conditions. Um, so a big area now is definitely around metabolic health and metabolic-based disease, so you know fatty liver, etc. Um, we use it for other areas of people's health um, in muscle wastage conditions. So things like muscular dystrophy and um, sarcopenia, so the loss of muscle tissue, we, we can use it there. Um, polycystic ovarian disease, if we're thinking about female health, we um, we see it, we use it there too. Um, but that, that just trying to gives you a broad overview. So there is definitely a clinical aspect. Um, there's always that sporting aspect. There's the obese overweight um, aspect too that we, we use it and that just ties back to those who are overweight and obese tend to have high metabolic risk so we can track visceral fat and if they're trying to lose weight we can obviously track what's happening to their body fat so it's got a quite a broad role and then it's obviously got the um, bone density component too which is what it was originally created for
1: yeah i, I like that uh, like it, it breaks things down so so well it's yeah you know, rather than just stepping on the scales and going oh, okay i'm 82 kilos today then you know that's obviously that's a mixture of your your bone density, the the weight of your bones, your um, the weight of your your fat and and your muscle. and the the way you break it down in the re, the report it it measures that really accurately. And the one thing I saw when I had those those two scans two months apart was i lost I lost a kilo and a half of muscle and a half a kilo of fat, just well, because i was, I picked up the the long distance training and I started to to do. Only endurance. And before that, I was doing a little bit more gym and I was still eating quite well. So I didn't have too much extra extra fat on me. But mm. um, it was just, it was good to see that change over time. And I think, you know, a, a kilo and a half of drop in muscle mass is, is a fair bit, but there's a reason behind it. So, you know, you, and like, you, you know, you ask the right questions too. You don't, you kind of ask, the right. so what do you mean know, doing the last um, sort of six months or so since then that, that might lead to that? And, Um, it just, uh, it's a really good sort of check-in that, um, that gives you more detail than just what a, what the weight on a scale would tell you. Yeah.
10: Yeah, you're exactly right. And one of the, the, I guess the backbone for our business was to help our clients use Dexar to the, to the best that you can. So we really focus on, um, reliability in the measurement over time so dexa the technology itself is very accurate precise but if it's not used um, in certain ways or inappropriately so you know around client preparation the scan positioning and the scan acquisition there are variables that can impact um, the the measurement itself and that goes for all types of indirect body composition tools like skin folds or bod pod or the scales that you get at home so as a practice, we really focus on that, and the good thing is we we've been able to show and and even in, it supports it's supportive in the research as well. You can track two to three hundred gram tissue change with a high degree of confidence.
1: So you're um so eight days into it. So is it just water that you're having at the moment, or is there anything else? no what's what's the what's the
11: go uh first 48 hours i was water only and then uh, i introduced um, zero calorie fluids like uh, black coffee and herbal teas um and the only other sort of well i've added electrolytes in there as well so magnesiums himalayan salt Uh, And only more recently, once uh, obviously there was a a fair amount of weight loss that was going on to to slightly ward off against uh, too much lean muscle mass being lost, I included some essential amino acids in there as well. But other than that, it's been no food as such. Um, The the, the science would suggest that if the body actually recognises that you've ingested calories of any description, the the premise of the fast is actually broken and um, all the the health benefits that I'm doing this for will be actually muted Um, so yeah that's that's basically been all I've consumed in the last eight days. And how long are you going for? Uh, well, if you ask my partner, I've gone way too long. And, uh, I mean, there are some byproducts of this. And it, it, if I walk the listeners through the what I've experienced over the eight days, that might give them a little bit more clarity as to why it's been such an extended fast. Uh, ultimately, to... to and, irrespective of which kind of um, sort of nutrition pattern that you might follow as a person or as an athlete, whether you're uh, a high carb person or a you know, low carb or paleo, like I mentioned, um, I'm, I'm typically a, a low carbohydrate, high fat eater, probably quite a, a lean, uh, sorry, a clean and paleo form of, of eating. So very little refined sugars or refined foods in any way um, or processed foods. So my uh, introduction to the first couple of days of, of total abstinence of food was actually quite easy because I'm already uh, quite well fat adapted and it didn't take my body very long to start um, moving into a ketogenic state. Um, and ultimately, the first 48 hours is, is quite important uh, for, for what I'm trying to achieve in the sense that we want to run whatever... Glycogens in the body are completely dry, so the liver and the muscles actually use up that glycogen because no, no uh, carbohydrates coming in. And once that happens, you're typically into nutritional ketosis. Uh, but after about the 48-hour period, then the the magic starts to happen. And what I'm after here is um, once the body goes into ketosis and we know that there's no uh, carbohydrate coming into the system, then it starts to sort of want to become a little bit uh, cannibalistic by its own default. It starts to the body starts to look around for any other internal um, fuel sources. So it knows it's got fat coming in, and that's that by default is being uh, broken down and made into ketones to help supply fuel to the brain and fuel to the muscles. But uh, it, the body starts to scavenge, and and what it uh, and for want of a better description, I'll give you the scientific term. It's called autophagy. And it, that autophagy actually puts the body into a catabolic state, so breaking uh, tissues down. And um, it, it's, it's almost like recycling of cellular waste, and it's almost like taking out the trash. So it actually looks for uh, cells, dead cells, uh, organelles, all the different things that are in the body that are actually a little bit toxic, and it actually starts to try to consume them for fuel, so it actually does what is basically essentially a big big spring clean um, of the body. But it only happens once you get past about that uh, 48 hours to 36 hours of of total fasting. So I did my first. 48 hours. Um, that wasn't too hard for me. I've done intermittent fasting for shorter periods in the past. So it's really just a, a little bit of a mind game to keep the boredom away from going to the fridge all the time. And uh, once I got into ketosis, uh, the other byproduct of ketosis is is an exceptionally suppressed um, hunger. So once you're into full ketosis, uh, you actually probably find that you start to forget about food, um, which is actually why it's been so easy for me to get to eight days. And and as I say, the the, the end is whatever I decide it to be because I'm in a state where, at the moment, um, I just don't think about eating.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask, was there a time that you felt you couldn't do the swim that you that you doubted whether you'd be able to to make it across, uh, or was it, or did were you pretty confident the whole way through. What was it like mentally for you?
12: Um, through training, I was always unsure, um, and I sort of had these these kind of key goals of what what I needed to do. Like I knew that I needed to do a really big swim and a couple of really big weeks of training, um, and training in you know rough water as well, just in case it got choppy. Um, and I guess having pushing the the swim forward a month, that threw me off because I hadn't done some of those things. So I was like, oh my God, I'm not prepared. Um, But during the actual swim, I never, I was quite surprised. I never actually had a moment where I thought, I can't do this. I had moments where I was like, oh my God, I wish this would be over right now. Hmm. Um, But I never thought, I can't finish this, which was I was amazed by when I reflected back on it. I thought, jeepers, that's pretty impressive. (laughs) So.
1: What, what, uh, was there a, a point throughout the swim where it started to really hurt or was it pretty even the whole way across and, and how did you pace it as well? Was it just um, was it just a steady pace the whole way through and you were able to, to maintain it or did you, your speed drop off towards the end as your fatigue? What was it like?
12: Um, it, I definitely got sore. Um, I think I was swimming over 3K an hour in the first 10Ks and then I dropped off a little bit. It got well. I thought it got choppy. Phil and Katrina probably didn't think it was, but when you're in the water that long, it feels like it's choppy. Um, and yeah, I kind of went in and out of cycles of swimming really well, and then not swimming so well. And you know, Phil would say to me, oh, "I can see that you're you're either uh, need some more fuel, or you're or you're in pain." Um, and it was always you know when I was in pain I wasn't swimming as great as I could be um I think yeah I mean by the end I definitely was a lot slower than the start um but I was relatively consistent I think I don't know you'd probably have to ask Phil that question um I definitely got to about 25k and got into a really hard space um like multiple parts of my body were hurting I um I spent a lot of time singing songs in my head over and over again. Um and yeah, when I got into that into headspace where I was like, Man, this really hurts I started thinking, Okay, I'm just gonna count my stroke and just kept counting and counting and counting. Um, started thinking about what else I could eat next. <laughs> you know, little treats. I knew I had um I had a Mars bar in, in my little pack and I had some Coke, so they were sort of things that I was holding on to for the end, um, and yeah, that's sort of sort of like, okay, if I get to 30Ks then I can, can have the Mars bar, and so that kind of helped.
1: It's all you need sometimes, isn't it, just a, a little sort of carrot dangling at the end of, or at specific markers, it doesn't need to be much, but just those little yeah. little markers as you, you go through and of. And I, I sort of, I, I did the same thing when I was doing some, some longer swims, uh, like when I was doing sort of a, a 10 or 15 K training swim towards rotto at the, like, you know, the 10 K mark or on the fourth lap of a five lap swim, it was, I'd save something in reserve there and the same thing for, yeah. for longer runs. And it's just, and that's all it takes. It's just cause you, you mind play these, plays these games and, um, it doesn't, need too much convincing to keep going if you give it the right motivation mm-hmm. and uh, especially when you're deep in the in the hurt locker and you're, you, you're that far, well you pass the halfway mark in a, a 40k swim but you're not very close towards the end part you know that 25k <laughs> mark um it, that's that's when it can really start to to get grim uh, well i can imagine and yeah um, yeah and just, i mean
12: one of i think a couple of people said to me you know and I think it may have even been Phil. Um, he said, don't look forward and don't look back because, you know, you're right in the middle of the lake and you're just like, oh, my God, I've got so far to go. But there were a couple of times where I did. He said to me, Oh, actually, have a look how far you've come because obviously I must have been struggling. And I was like, oh, shit, that's pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, there are you definitely need those little motivating things that, that help you along the way because you're on a you're on a really fine tipping point of either, you know, keep going or, oh, my God, this is too hard. Um, and, certain, and I think once you start going into that, it's too hard, then it's kind of all downhill. Mm. So you just have to really keep focusing on little bits and pieces along the way. And, you know, feeding every half hour always helps because you, you kind of expect it after that long. You know when it's about to happen and you think, oh, sweet, I can talk to somebody first. For a minute or you know, I can it takes you out of the situation that you're in just for a few minutes. Mm. Um yeah, so that definitely helped.
1: I'm curious, what's what songs were you singing in your head? Do you remember which ones?
12: Um, yeah, I was singing Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down. <laughs>
1: that's, a, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> it's got a good rhythm, yeah. I think, for, for swimming.
12: Yeah, it has actually. Um, and the other one was uh Rudimentals um what is pushing? I'm not giving in, or something like that. Yeah,
1: I think I know. Yeah, I know the song you you're referring
12: and, to. In the black seeds, keep on pushing. <laughs> They're all it's very,
1: cute. very motivating songs.
12: Yeah, well, I I listened to a few songs beforehand and thought, oh, which ones will, will I sing, you know, because I'd read a few books and you know people would said, oh, it's quite helpful because you're in your own headspace and all you've got is the, the noise of the water the whole time, so it's a long time to be in your own head space
1: <laughs> yeah it is I think that's what I did for Rotness. I, I had toto Africa in my head oh. the whole time and I, I didn't know it well actually no I, I found out it at, at the 10k mark that my skipper in the boat had it blaring from the speakers but I couldn't hear it when I was swimming um, so he had it blaring for about four hours in the boat um, but and he sent me a message yesterday where he, he had a video and, and that song was playing somewhere, look, and he said, "This reminds yeah. me of you," and it's it's probably more burnt in his mind than it is than it is mine uh, after four hours of Toto Africa, but it's um it got me th- it got me through, and it's just uh, it makes the time go a lot quicker.
12: It's quite funny because you'd think that you'd actually hate the song after it, but not at all. We actually quite enjoy that song, so yeah. Yeah,
1: I it's, uh, uh, it's, it's starting to annoy me now actually <laughs> the, the song. I'm, uh, uh, it just, it reminds me of getting up at, I think it was like three o'clock in the morning or three thirty in the morning and I had it going then before I got ready for the swim. And yeah. I think, and I think that's why I can't listen to it at the moment because it just reminds me of early mornings. And I've got a two week old son and we're not getting any sleep at all. And it's just not, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's just bad memories. It's, it's deja vu. <laughs> I think that, um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think next time I'll, I don't know if I'll go the same song or not next time I do a long swim. But um, yeah, it's, it's it's a very good strategy to use. And I remember Phil talking about counting your strokes as well. He, I think he said he'd count to 300. Uh, and he just mm-hmm. kept going through that when he was doing these long sort of 10 to 20K races back in back in the day. And um, I found that quite, um, quite useful for the, mostly for the training swims, but I used it a little bit during the races. One of the things that I've been, Talking to a lot of swimmers about recently is their current beliefs about what they need to do when they're swimming. A few examples of this are a couple of members that I've recently had join. uh, They've had these beliefs in their mind about what they should be doing with their stroke to swim fast, things that they've either picked up from other coaches or other swimmers, or they might have uh, learned from watching um, videos online. And some beliefs can be helpful, but some can make you freeze, they can make you plateau. And I see this more often than not when I'm working face to face with swimmers. And it's not something that they'll directly say to me. They're saying this is what I have been told and this is what I'm going for. But you can see it if you start to peel back the layers and ask the right questions. And this is something that I would encourage you to question yourself and that's what beliefs you currently have about your swimming that might actually be holding you back. An example of this is somebody who recently joined the membership, he was, uh, he was taking some classes from a, uh, a coach that was local to him, and the coach was telling him, you need to enter your hand and go very deep. You've got to go well below the line of your shoulder, you've got to, um, to really drive it down deep and, uh, and then hold it there for at least a second in order to, I don't know, find your balance or something along those lines. Uh, and so we submitted a video through the membership and we had a look at it and it was obvious that he was just going way too deep with his hand in his reach phase of the stroke. So his, his hand was about 30, 40 centimetres below the, uh, the line of his shoulder when he finished reaching forwards. Now we want this to be just a little bit deeper than your armpit in order to have a very slight downwards angle with your arm. And what, uh, you know, what we saw there was he was going so deep that his arm was just putting the brakes on. With his arm so deep, the oncoming water is hitting the top of his arm, slowing him down, putting the brakes on, and it was, it's almost impossible to, to overcome that drag and that resistance that he was creating because of this one belief. So what we're, we're now working towards, and it's only been a week, but what we're working towards is just getting him to let go of that belief, change it, and, and aim for the right depth with that part of the stroke, and we're going to practice that for three or four weeks. He's then going to send in another video. We'll have a look at how his stroke's progressing and then look at what the next thing is to work on and maybe breaking down another one of those beliefs that he, uh, that he holds because of what he's been told in the past. So have a think about what are some of those things that you've taken on from coaches or from other swimmers that might actually be holding you back. Another uh, example of this is, I had a swimmer come to our Melbourne clinic recently and her coach, was telling her to uh, to pull harder. The way to swim faster is to pull harder, pull harder. And you could see that she was going for a lot of power straight away in the stroke. So as soon as her hand entered, she was uh, she was just going for broke. She was really trying to pull through with uh, with everything she had. And this was doing a few things for it. Number one, she was getting tired after 100 meters, uh, no matter what the pace that she was swimming at. The other thing that she was doing was just slipping in the water, and, and by slipping, I mean in the, the catch phase, the reach phase, she was just uh, pulling through too early, so she just wasn't able to get into a, a good catch position. The elbow was dropping and she was slipping, so she just wasn't maintaining much pressure or, or force on the water. And uh, it wasn't until we, we kind of got down to the bottom of it where I kind of asked her, you know, I said to her, it looks like you're, trying to pull through too hard too early. You should accelerate through the stroke. So you're going to be that little bit slower out in front while you set yourself up with the catch. It's all about setting yourself up in the, the early phase of the stroke, getting into a good position, and then you can start to apply power and you can start to increase the speed at which your hand moves through. And then you'll, you'll exit uh, with a bit of speed there. And it wasn't until we sort of went over that and she said, oh, my coach said, this is what I am what I need to do. So this is what I've been trying to do. And uh, yeah, and, and so we sort of uncovered one of those beliefs that was holding her back. So what are some of those things that, that you currently hold that might be holding you back? Now there are some beliefs that will also help you. So you know, if, you, if you do underwater filming, if you uh, if you have your stroke analysed or if you're, you're working with a coach that you trust, then you might need to hold some uh, some beliefs that will help you uh, make those those positive changes in your stroke, but it's it's something that I come across a lot, and and sometimes it will take me three or four sessions with someone to actually uncover what those those beliefs are. But uh, if you can if you can think about what they are, write them down, and uh, and just question are they ones that are actually helping you work towards your, your swimming goals. And I think it, especially at that level of of racing, you know, as a as a professional triathlete in the the very pointy end of the field, you know, it's often it can just come down to your your mindset on the day and how you if you can push through the the challenges that you get, and it's um it's really about the one percenters at the level that you're that you're racing at. Even even from I guess your more uh, age group athletes, it's uh, they can have some big improvements or big changes in the results that they get based on on what they're thinking and. Um, mm-hmm. Especially as um, you know if you're doing this if you're doing this full time, the mind games can it's very easy to let them get the the better of you. and uh, with um, with this book, what's the the fearless mind? what what were the sort of main takeaways that you got from the book? what What caused you to read it five times?
13: Um, well, it's a very simple read. it's it's a small book, um, and it's just uh, the way that he talks in the book, or he writes in the book. Um, it's just very simple cues and and, and understanding he, he basically um, in the book it makes you just feel confident um, what I got out of it was really how simple things could be rather than always thinking about the what ifs and stuff and it's it, it's really just embracing the now the moment and and being in the moment and the and and how to do that so a lot of the times like he used to be a tennis player so he related it to to tennis a lot. And so if he was in a match, you know, um, and his mind was was unraveling, he would focus on his backhand and it would just be a very specific part of the backhand, like the flick of his wrist. Um, and so every time he would go into a match, it would be fl- um, like, for example, and I don't know anything about tennis, but say <laughs> um, fl- uh, fl- fl- uh, flick your wrist to the right. And so he would just say, say in his head, flick right, flick right, flick right. So it's very, just very simple things at first that you need to focus on so that you don't have all this external stimulus and talk in your head. That's that, that could be negative. And then from there, the book kind of goes into the negative self-talk and like the things that we say to ourselves. And the key, the key out of all of it is, is really that internal chatter you have and what you say to yourself. And so A lot of the times, um, we keep a journal, and and we and we just we we have to choose our words. And so he's helped me create little cues and um, things to look at every day, where I I can really just choose those words and like have them as cues, so that if my mind is unraveling to certain aspects, I can go back to those all the time. And um, an example of this. In a race, is you know just just the words "I am strong." Like it just it just helped me focus on on you know the power output of um, on the bike, or um, it's just very very simple things. And he just made it very profound within the simplicity of it.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what I I think is really the um, the key to. The key to doing things well is to find the simplest form of it and that comes down to um your mindset and i mean we run a lot of swimming clinics here in australia and we've been doing it for the last four or five years and at the start we did there's about 24 different drills throughout the clinic and it was just it was just overload and i think that really the um the, the trying to find the simplest way to do it is is the mm-hmm. best way so now we do it's like four or five drills um it's simplified down into two or three key points but the results that we get now compared to five years ago is is so much better just because it's it's really boiled down to the simplest form of things so um yeah it's, it's great that he's that he's able to do that and the funny thing about flow and i mean you're with the the red bull team and they're really all about getting into to flow um with all mm-hmm. of their their athletes and, <clears throat> and the thing about that is as soon as you think about getting into flow you've Lost it as soon as. So it, it, it's a very um, challenging thing to do. But I was chatting with a guy, Grant Giles. He's a, a triathlon coach here in Australia and coaches a lot of the the pro guys over here. And he's very big into um, to mindset and psychology. And he said that with one of his athletes who was actually a, a surf ski paddler, um, in order to get into the flow, all he had him do was just think about the feel of the paddle in the water with every stroke that he was taking. And that's it. You, oh. you don't want to think about um, anything else. It's just feeling the feeling the paddle in the water and for swimming you know for me it's just um the the first part of the catch just kind of getting the feel for that entry out in front the early part of the catch and then if i just focus on that the rest of it tends to uh to come easily and i can just get in the zone really really Now, in the last, I guess, 9 or 9, 12 months, since you've been able to get a bit more swimming under your belt and coming from not much of a, a background, do you think about your swimming differently in terms of you get to the pool? Are you, are you more confident with your, your swimming? Do you enjoy it more? Has anything changed there?
14: I think the enjoyment piece around the swimming came fairly early in, in the piece because I saw some very quick improvements there. And you know, starting out from not having any swimming background and racing locally uh, here in Darwin, um, I saw myself progress past a lot of the other triathletes who had been doing the sport a lot longer than me. So that that enjoyment came with that, you know, fed into that confidence that you know, possibly I've got something here that to um, to take a bit bit further. And and where it was initially going to those swimming sessions, it was more of a case of. You know i had a little bit of a fear of, of water particularly open water swimming and it's a case of you know i'm doing this for myself to become a better you know swimmer to, to begin with um and so i'd go into the swimming sessions going okay i'm doing this to survive this time and you know eventually it's going to make me better but as you know i've um, spent more time in the water been exposed to a lot more uh swimmers and triathletes um that's transferred into me, you know, really looking forward to each of each of the sessions um, and, you know, going into each session with a specific goal or a purpose in mind, saying, all right, last week, uh, you know, that 135 was, was pretty comfortable. Let's see if we can just sharpen it up a little bit further. Um, that being said, you know, you have good days, bad days, you're going in and out from one training session to the next across the three disciplines. So um, you do have those waves, but I find that Having that that structure really does help me to keep the focus and, and you know keep the enjoyment there as well
1: yeah, it's it's like public speaking where the the first time that you do it or the first couple of times that you do it it is it almost feels like a matter of survival it's just like the, the you know the nerves hit everyone's <laughs> looking at me um, I'm trying to think about what I'm saying how do I how do I look am I right uh, stumbling over my words and then and actually it was a good comparison is this, the first um the first couple podcasts that i did this was oh look i think it was probably 2012 2013 and uh i just i couldn't you couldn't pay me enough money to go back and listen to those initial podcasts that i recorded because <laughs> they were just yeah i I haven't listened to them again but i know that they were so, they were just so so bad um that there's just no um i was just yeah just nervous about everything and um but now it's just like it's easy you know it, it just it's a happens conversation. it's a conversation right. yeah but before it was I was I was an in, I was interviewing people there was no sort of uh conversation at all I wouldn't chip in with anything it was just um <laughs> it was almost like you could have just um I could have been a journalist and writing an article for a newspaper and I could have, I just put in questions right. to people and, and they answer but there's no back and forth where it's um yeah it's it, it's like it's like any skill where you've really just um the, the first time that you do it or first couple of times, you are not going to be able to get into any sort of uh, uh, flow. You're not going to be able to relax with it at, at all. So um, it's, yeah, it, it, it really takes a while to get to that, uh, the that, sort of competence to be able to, um, to, to relax while you're, you're doing it. But particularly for swimming, you know, if you're in that um, sort of flight mode, and uh and you're not able to to just relax it makes anything else so so much uh well almost impossible to do if, if you're
15: in, in panic mode yeah and yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah i think the 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 breathing thing in particular is 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 the biggest hurdle and i think one of the one of the tools that i utilize quite a lot early on is a snorkel just because it takes that it takes that need to breathe out of the equation. If we can learn to breathe through the snorkel, it, it, it quietens down because we've got continuous access to the air. It quietens down that that flight mode, as you call it. Um, I like that. Uh, the, the, it sort of shuts that voice down and allows us to focus on elements of the stroke that we need to be to be working on. Um, but yeah, you you spot on 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 relating it to public speaking. It's it's exactly the same, and I think. It's my, it's my number one message that I push through to, to, to people uh, both on my sites and my writing and, uh, and with the clients that I work, on, work with one-on-one is that this is just a skill. Um, it's a difficult skill to learn, but it's just a skill in the same way that public speaking is a skill, in the same way that, that anything is a, is a skill. It can be mastered. Um, and, and there are certain genetic predispositions that you can have that can make you better at it. Um, but uh, to be completely brutal and and honest, the level of swimming in triathlon is not particularly high if you compare it to to uh, to actual specialist swimmers, and I, I see no reason why any triathlete cannot swim at a uh, sort of fifty percent of the of the pack and or or upper upper half of the pack um, in, in any race because. As if they focus their attention uh, and focus their their efforts on on the right things at the right time, it's it's not a mythical uh, thing that's only bestowed upon certain people. This is it's a skill. Uh, the more you practice it, the better you'll get at it. And and particularly in triathlon, you don't have to get to an elite level to be competitive. Um, so you know, anyone can master it.
1: Um, and as you said, there's they're not, they're teaching some very different things in terms of technique. Like even with the, the, the sprinters, um, like I think Dressley is pretty much, it's like a straight arm freestyle. And I mean, Klimia was the same back in the day. And, um, and then with breaststroke, you've got Adam Peaty who's got this super fast rating, um, Rebecca Sony who's quite unique compared to some of the other breaststrokers. It's, uh, you're sort of seeing this, some of the technique, uh, they're not teaching just one style anymore, which is, um, which is really good. And it's just, I guess adapting it to whoever they wh- whoever the person is depending on their their height, their strength, or their strengths yeah. in the stroke it's um yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's there's really no, exciting.
0: Uh, there's no cookie cutter uh, technique anymore that's going to work for everybody like um everybody's going to have to do something that's going to work just a little bit better for their body than it would have worked for for somebody else and Um, So I I think the one thing that's really been great is that you've been seeing a bit of a renaissance among the coaches um, as they've started to realize that um, there's got to be more than one technique across swimmers. You used to walk to a club, like on the deck of a club, and you'd see everybody would be doing the exact same freestyle, the exact same breaststroke, you know, butterfly or or, um, backstroke. And now you're kind of seeing, you know, a bunch of different styles um, on on the one team as swimmers are also um, more comfortable being able to kind of – you know, kind of listen to their own, um, body's analytics, right? Because there's no, um, there's no better feedback than the feeling of water against your own skin. Right. Mm. So, um, I think, I think that's been, um, I think that's just been really awesome to see.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you look at even the 1500, look at Sun Yang compared to Pelotoneri and there couldn't be two more different types of, of freestyle there. Yet oh, they're yeah. both just like, they're both as quick as one another. And, um, like I've sort of looked at um, well, Gregorio's stroke in slow motion quite a bit just to kind of understand what he's doing in, in each part of the stroke. And it just, it doesn't fit the typical box of, uh, of, of what you'd expect with freestyle. Like it's very unique and it's not, it's not pretty compared to, you know, it's not a beautiful stroke, but boy, it's quick.
0: Yeah, I know. That's the thing. It, it doesn't need to look pretty. The only thing that people care about is what the clock says at the end of the race. Right. Nobody cares what you look like while you were doing it.
1: Exactly right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, no, no, nobody asked that question at the end. goes, how did, how did you look? And it's like, no, how, what was your time?
0: Yeah. Like it's, it's not diving. It's not figure skating. It's not synchro swimming, right? It's not a judged sport, right? So it's not like, oh, you know, you went sub 48 for 450 freestyle, but you know, point deductions cause you know, (laughs) you know, you lifted your head up too high on the breath or you know, whatever, you know, not enough dolphin kicks underwater off the wall.
1: Yeah. It, that it, it, Yeah, completely true. And the, I've started open water swimming a couple of years back and I come from a pool background and it was pretty much when I allowed myself to get a little bit scrappy and messy with the stroke that my times in the open water started to really improve because if there's any sort of chop in the water you, and you're trying to swim with a, a traditional sort of freestyle stroke, the longer smoother stroke, it doesn't work as well as you know being a bit more aggressive on the entry and with the recovery and faster stroke rate so it's just um knowing when and how to make those adaptations um yeah depending on what event you're doing
0: yeah i mean i even look back at my my london race and you know just seeing what uh, um you know how strokes have evolved since then i look at it and go you know what i kind of wish you know maybe i just stuck around a little bit longer because i would have liked to have tried you know opening up my arms a little bit I even look at that race and go, "Huh, my head position was actually up a little bit too high." So, <laughs> you know, with that medal, like I still know that I I still had uh, rooms uh, for improvement in terms of uh, in terms of technique. So it, it would have been cool to stick around a little bit more and uh, play around with my stroke a little bit.
16: At the beginning of my career, and I needed some sort of out, and I found that out in endurance sport. And I just got really, really into events, and sort of did, did the classic thing of starting off with uh, some short distance runs. Um, got into triathlon, then got into some quite extreme triathlons, ultra running. And as time went by, just started trying to find more and more extreme events. Uh, and typically, the, the sort of things that I was looking for with these races, you know, when you're, I think when you're, I just wanted to completely get away from it and immerse myself in beautiful landscapes somewhere, you know, normally there was a bit of a trip involved and I might have to get a flight or drive for a number of hours to get, get out somewhere like me, as far away as possible to um, sort of clear my headspace. Years and years and years uh, went by doing these events and finally I came across this uh, event called the ATLA in Sweden and this the Otelo was the first ever swim run race uh, and so in 2012 myself and one of my racing buddies turned up to do this event we were woefully underprepared. Um, we hadn't even we had never trained together. Um, we had not prepared our kits. We hadn't practiced with the kit. We just thought we'd turn up and have a go. Uh, did the event and absolutely fell in love with the sport. It was just it was the most fun I'd ever had racing, and it was sort of the confluence of all of the things that I look for in endurance sports. Um, and I, I think that's really down to the format. So for the uninitiated, swim run is a uh, it's uh, clearly, self-evidently, it's a swimming and running event. Uh, but perhaps what's not so clear is that uh, the format uh, means you race as a pair, so you race in a team of two, and you have to stick together at all times. Some people ask, you know, can you do? Can one person do the runs? Can one person do the swims? Absolutely not. You're doing it side by side and supporting each other through this course. And the, the second thing is that. Uh, there are multiple swims and multiple runs um, uh, on on these courses so a course could have anywhere from four swims and five runs up to something like i don't know, 10 or 11 swims and uh, 12 runs uh, because you're chopping and changing and getting in and out of the water all, all the time you actually can't the, the, you, you actually can't have a set of clothes of each of the transitions like you might have with um, triathlon. So instead, what people—the way the sport has evolved—is that people just wear, they, they essentially wear the kit that they started with throughout the race. So you have to run in your wetsuit, and you have to swim in your trainers. Uh, so it's uh, that sounds like a lot when you first when you first hear about it. The thought of running in a wetsuit just sounds horrendous. But actually, I'd say the dirty little secret of swimrun is that it's not so bad. And actually, the uh, wetsuit manufacturers are getting behind the sport and starting to produce swimrun-specific suits, which make the whole task much easier than perhaps it sounds.
1: And what about, um, this kind of goes into it, what about uh, gym or or strength exercises? And uh, what sort of things can people change or do to to build up their strength um, as you know as part of swimming because yes. we're not we're not looking to get bulky we're just looking to get to get strong um, but also yep. I mean, it's really about functional strength when it comes to uh, to the strength training and and
17: swimming together. So. Well, it's a great question, Brendan. I think the, the the number one functional sort of at the foundation of all functional movements is the squats. And that's something that I see uh, performed, in my opinion, uh, incorrectly very often. And so it's it's an area that, that, that needs a lot of attention. And the benefits of squatting functionally have, uh, I mean, I can keep you here for two hours and that, but I won't it's, it's incredible for the lower back. It's For swimmers, it's, it's a wonderful way of loosening up, especially your latissimus dorsi or lats. It, it really helps to improve posture. So if you've got those desk-bound um, swimmers, squats are for me fundamental to get right and i'm I'm happy to share a few you know pointers or errors that the guys do tend to make when they squat
1: yeah what what would they be
17: well we've, we've been taught with the squats to uh it's because so many people have hurt their backs to keep their backs straight and so the first mistake or thing i find when guys are squatting is they've got this sort of uh, military uprights you know with a sort of a proud chest And the other thing we find is they're looking straight ahead, uh, which you'll you'll find that when you—the whole point of squatting is to actually go down and pick something off the ground or to bend. So by by actually getting into squat and to relax the upper back. So I'm not saying they must obviously they mustn't round their lower back, but we're finding that sort of whole proud stick the chest out, look straight ahead position actually switches off the the core muscles. So looking down about a meter in front of you, it's the okay. same when you're swimming, you'll notice when you're swimming, if your head's up, you actually core. it's difficult to contract the core. If you put your head down a little bit, you'll find the core switches on automatically. And it's the same principle with the squat.
1: I think that's where I, uh, I've never really done squats much before because I've always had issues with my lower back in that, the kind of lowest, lowest point in the squat. Sure and is. I think it's sure because is. I, I'm thinking, I, th- I think I look too far forwards when I do it, and I'm and I'm exactly what you're talking about. Just the chest out, shoulder, the, the scapula is really uh, retracted back.
17: Yeah, you don't want to do that.
1: So that's uh, so that's the, the the main mistake that you see people
17: make. So that's the first. Yeah, the, first. the second thing is their their knees go too far forward. So we find that often the instruction is don't let your knees go past your toes. I always instruct the guys that that's, that's still too far forwards. We've got to let the knees just be in the midline of the foot. So what I call the soft knee position. So it's it's just keeping those knees relaxed. As they go down, people tend to then go, as they go down, they tend to let the knee go almost in line with the toes. And they think that's, they say, well, that's fine. My knee's not going past the toes, but that's still too far forward. You're going to find in that position, the quadriceps and the hamstrings are still going to dominate the movement. And even though they are uh, working in the in the squats, the, your power muscle is your, your core, which is your abdominals and your glutes, got a fire. And um, so that's a big mistake I find. The other mis- another mistake people do is when they push up, they actually they stand up instead of push up. So they actually lift up from the lower back muscles instead of pushing through the ground, which activates the the core, the glutes, and the abdominal muscles. So there's, there's, there's quite a number of you know there's quite a number of mistakes that the guys make uh, with with the the with the core and also if you've got postural problems or you're not in great posture squatting can be really difficult so it's important to realise you know that's part of the work that I do online is to help the guys identify where their restrictions are and how they can can reduce that or, or work around that.
1: What what sort of time should someone let's say someone's training three times a week, they're a master's swimmer and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they, they'd they like to improve their mobility and, and move better. How much time yep. should they, let's say, ideally set aside in an deal world, how much time could they put into a pre swim routine? And then what's the, the bare minimum to see at least a little bit of results?
18: Um, so I would say if we start with the bare minimum, I, I've got a three-minute routine that I give out to... Uh, you know the the older clientele, and also the the kids that are coming straight from school and hitting the hitting the water, and telling me that they have no time, and they just you know they have to jump straight in. So negotiate it down into a, a three-minute yoga routine that uh, hits all five of those areas. So that's that's the bare minimum from my perspective, and I think um, you know everyone can everyone can find three minutes, and it's it's also about uh, getting the coaches to buy in on that because. The coach needs to see the the difference in terms of their swimming that the three minutes can make and uh you know it's going to you're going to make more difference in those three minutes than doing an extra you know 200 meters or an extra 400 meters in the water as a as a warm-up and if we go to more of an ideal time frame you know 15 to 20 minutes is is what we work on with our elite guys um you know they're getting paid to do it so they're Uh, they're often a bit better with their uh, their buy-in to it but again it's it's for those guys they have to see they have to see the change and they have to feel the change in order to to get them to buy in and once they do that's from my perspective that's when you really you see them buy into it and uh, really start to develop and get better each time because their skill acquisitions better they have less niggles all that sort of stuff
1: So the first thing that I've got here is clearing the mind. One of our coaches, Mitchell Patterson, who was a Commonwealth record holder, he was an Australian representative, Uh, he was a coach on the camp and he's worked with us for quite a few years now. And one of the things that he spoke to the group about was when it comes to racing, when you're standing behind the blocks or you're standing on the start line, you need to have a clear head and you might want to keep one or two things in mind, but after that, Shut yourself off from overthinking and analyzing things. The thinking should be done in training. And we talk a lot about this in terms of your technique. Think about your stroke, really concentrate on it when you're training. But when it comes to racing, the hard work or the thinking's done. So what you need to do is clear the mind and you may want to use one or two cues or mantras as you're swimming to remember, but that is it. That allows you to get into flow and get into the state of being able to perform at your best And all you need to worry about is the pacing and your racing strategy, as opposed to wondering what your left hand's doing on the entry or in the pool. No, that stuff is done. That's what you do in training. It's got to be, the mind's got to be clear. So Mitch spoke about when he, when he was training one of the races that he, he did, uh, where he was at the Australian national championships in the, in the heats, he went about a second slower than what he'd done before. And The reason he put it down to was because he was overthinking every single part of his stroke. He was wondering about was his entry right, how was his pull through, where was he exiting, how he went off the blocks, his hand position on the blocks, his feet, were his hips high enough. He was thinking about all these little details. And particularly for a 100 butterfly, when you're overthinking things, the timing of the stroke and the timing of each of the movements is going to get thrown off by, might be milliseconds or tenths of a second and if that's the case then you're not going to be able to perform at your very best and get anywhere close to your best time now with that time that he made he finished ninth in the event and only eight make the final but he was fortunate enough that one swimmer in the final pulled out beforehand which gave him a spot in the final so he was in an outside lane and when it came to racing in that final he didn't care it was almost like a a free shot so when he was standing behind the blocks, he certainly wanted to do well, but he wasn't putting the pressure on himself and which caused him to not overthink. It caused him to just really clear the mind. And he ended up getting second in that race. So the Australian nationals from an outside lane got second, went over a second fast lane did in the heats and ended up with a really good time. So he told the story of how he was able to get rid of the overthinking and put that into his stroke. and and you started to swim across eventually or were you just hoping for the for some boats to come or what was the Mm -hmm. what was your thought pattern when you're when you started to Mm. say it was there
19: yeah so when that we saw that island and that island became visible then we had two options or waiting in the ocean and we had one small lifeboat for about six people um so one option was to stay in the middle of the ocean with that small lifeboat and waiting till, yeah, maybe rescue would come, but we couldn't like make contact with anyone. So nobody knew that we were sinking. So then we had to wait for a passing boat. Um, but the days before we didn't see any boats. And the other option was to trying to swim to that island. Um, and we almost knew for sure that we couldn't reach it because it was so as well. So we almost knew for sure that we couldn't reach it because it was so far away, but at least yeah, we could try because the other option waiting by the lifeboat was not a a good option as well. So it was like really, okay, one of another. But for me, as soon as I saw that island, I thought, okay, I have to go to this island and I want to try to, to make it. And, um, yeah, probably I'm not going to make it, but at least I can try and I uh, I will fight for my life instead of that I wait here in the middle of the ocean and just it's passive waiting and do nothing. Um, yeah, so then we started arguing a bit and fighting what we had to do. Um, and I really wanted to swim away to that island, but um, I couldn't convince the other people and um, they said it's too dangerous to yeah yeah, to swim to the to the current of the ocean. and um, yeah, it's so far away. and when you like can't rest, and here we have the lifeboat, and uh, better to wait here with the lifeboat. Um, so yes, it was really, yeah, what I said, two options that we had, and um, people with different um yeah opinions and um different feelings on what we had to do. so yeah, it was pretty pretty difficult. um but for me, um, yeah, what I said for me it was the island, and I couldn't think about anything else. so i had yeah, in I think it was about ten a m in the morning that I thought, okay, i have to to leave there now as soon as possible because uh, I can use the whole way now when when there's daylight to yeah, try to make it to this island instead of that I wait there for any longer, losing more energy. This So, um, mm. yeah, I decided to leave.
0: Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.